The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. People often tell me, you're so candid and honest, how do you do it? And I say, well, you know, my privilege allows me to be candid about my depression and anxiety. I'm a well-off, heterosexual white woman with two Ivy League degrees. Not only that, I grew up in a culture where therapy was literally part of the fabric of my family's life. And not only that, I'm a woman. It's easy for me to be open about my crazy. But it's not enough for someone like me to be candid. Part of the goal of this show is to remove some of the stigma that comes with all of this. And in many communities, and in our culture writ large, that's much harder to do. Last season, we spoke to Dr. Angela Neal Barnett and Nilifer Merchant about something called the anxiety of the only. The stress of being the only woman, the only person of color, the only person with a disability in an office, and the strain that comes attached to that, and how that strain is multiplied when you're feeling anxious or depressed. For men of color to be open and honest about their mental health issues can be even harder. Today's guest is trying to tackle that problem. Jason Rosario is the founder and creative director of a company called The Lives of Men that has the mission of tackling toxic masculinity and challenging the myths around what it means to be a Black or Latino man. All of these issues are tied up with mental health with an ability to be open about feelings and struggles, and with ideas about what it means to be a man and to overcome struggle. I think the the one thing that I've learned doing this work is that men are probably the most sensitive creatures on the planet. Um, But we just don't give ourselves credit or the, the, the license to admit that to ourselves and to the world. And so, you know, as I do this work and I start to kind of peel back the layers of of conditioning and socialization that I, as an individual, as a man myself, has has experienced and has been subjected to, I've learned that about myself. And, And the more that I have conversations with men about vulnerability and sensitivity and what true manhood means to them, I discover that that you know being sensitive is something that we all have in common. It's mm, so beautiful, and and I have to say, I have I have two boys who are prepubescent, but with every year, I can see them being told to be tougher, even still, and it just breaks my heart because they are way more sensitive than my daughter. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that because there are studies that show that young boys uh, before the age of five are actually more emotionally expressive than than uh, girls. And so something happens at around age five and six where that starts to kind of – they start to separate from that uh, sensibility. So, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't surprise me you said that. Jason, you have written that you're a child of a violent household. And, and you wrote that you realized that machismo, which was sort of a characteristic that you attributed, I think, to your stepfather, 
Machismo, like any facet of patriarchy, destroys boys and men. And you noted as a grown-up that your abusive stepfather's anger and his treatment of your mom, you felt was a result of that inability to express his deepest pain, maybe conditioning that he could not express that pain. And so I'm curious, like, how does this machismo conflict with mental health? Yeah, I mean, when you think about machismo and what it is at its core, it's the pressure that men feel or are held to to subscribe to old notions or traditional notions of masculinity, right? Mm. So being stoic and being aggressive and, and uh, you know, every, everything not sensitive and vulnerable. And so when you think about that, I, I look at that as having a direct relationship to the reasons why we suffer from depression and anxiety, because it is the very thing that is anti what an emotionally healthy human being, regardless of whether you're a man or, or a woman or mm-hmm. what have you, uh, uh, an emotionally healthy human being is taught to do to be emotionally healthy. And that is to express themselves, to uh, develop a wide range of emotional uh, response systems, if you will. So toxic masculinity, as it were, and I hate the term, we can get into it later, but machismo as well is just is the antithesis to that. And so for me, growing up and, and uh, kind of doing the work now and, and looking back at my experience, I can only attribute his anger and, and the ways that he showed up in his relationship with my mother to not not only subscribing to those traditional notions, but then having some socioeconomic and social, um, uh, car- or I guess, variables to deal with, right? As an immigrant man, not having grasp of the English language, having to move about the world in ways that maybe he didn't want to. So there were a ton of pressures that I'm sure he was feeling, uh, not not to uh, absolve him of, of his behavior, but, you know, all of those things combined, I think, contributed to his anger and his pent-up aggression. Right. And and his probably feeling that he sometimes had lack of agency or lack of leadership when he was right. out in the world, he could come home and take it out. I mean, it's got to get out somehow, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. So I really want to focus on, on the workplace and leadership because that's the lens of, of this show and mental health. Going back to the beginning of why you started the lives of men. Can you talk about events in 2016, 2017, and the roots yeah. of why you you did this leap, really, Absolutely. from your seemingly very lucrative career in finance? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and oftentimes, it, I get a lot of questions about my, my own mental health <laughs> in terms of leaving <laughs> a, a lucrative career. Uh, but yeah, no. So, so in 2016, uh, the police shootings were occurring, right? And and the beginnings of the current social political landscape was happening. So there was a lot of conversation uh, in the zeitgeist around masculinity and men, and particularly black and Latino men. So that coupled with the the fact that I've always been present to my lived experience and how I showed up in the world, uh, especially in corporate spaces, being six foot four, being a, a, a black man, an Afro Latino. Mm-hmm black man at that, um, being very aware of that and how people reacted to me, all of that combined for me to say, you know, I, I wanted to create something that served as a platform for men like myself who might have similar experiences uh, that, that can be an outlet, right, that can serve as a resource, if you will. And then you fast forward. So I launched the brand in, in early 2017. And then a few months later, Me Too goes viral. 
And then all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a public discourse around this conversation. And then, you know, mental health, the, the kind of athletes start to come out and start talking about mental health. And, you know, that becomes a thing. So for me, it was just it started with wanting to create something that was a platform that was selfishly uh, my own medicine, something that I can fall back on first and foremost. And then I can uh, turn around and package that experience uh, in a way that other people can draw inspiration from. And then it just evolved to a platform that touched on some of these major issues that were happening in society. And and so, you know, it's evolved now to become what I'll call an impact agency mm-hmm. um, that kind of does work with centers of influence in the tech, media, and advertising space around this conversation of, of uh, diversity, inclusion, mental health, allyship. That's kind of the, the genesis behind it. And what about your own mental health? Was there a moment looking back of extreme anxiety in your own self that may have spurred you to do this work? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I can't I mean, yeah, now looking back, hindsight being 2020, I can definitely point to instances that uh, that just weren't normal. Right. Uh, growing up in the inner city in the Bronx, that that comes with a certain experience and mm-hmm. you, you have to become a chameleon and learn how to adapt just to survive. And that's traumatic in and of itself. So, yeah, absolutely. There were many instances that I can look back and point to. Uh, but in the moment, uh, as, as I'm growing and kind of becoming who I am, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking about if it's my career, I'm just trying to think about what is what do I need to do to be successful there? What do I need to do to take care of my family? What do I need to do for myself to become the best version of myself? So for me, mental health, as it were, or whether or not I was suffering from depression or anxiety was never a thought at the forefront of my mind. Only until after I experienced a breakup, only after I started to feel uh, this this despondency, if you will, uh, with just all the way I felt that the weight of the world was uh, was on my shoulders. I started to really think about, well, what is it that I'm feeling? What this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel normal. And decided to just try therapy. And and when I went to therapy, you know, that was eye opening because mm. he gave me my therapist gave me language to articulate what I was feeling and the whys. So, for example, I would as a workaholic. Uh, that was a way for me to cope with with my depression at times, right? Wanting to drown myself in the work, and, and so for me, it was just that's that's kind of my introduction to um, the ways that mental health played a part in my in my journey. Can you spot now a trigger if you're feeling depressed and you have the urge to keep working? What does that feel like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not just being a workaholic, but sometimes it's just numbing myself in, you know, maybe going spending money that I shouldn't be spending uh, yeah. or overeating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, for example, I'm an, uh, if I'm feeling a certain way, if I'm feeling heavy for a reason, uh, if, if I just look at what I'm eating, if I'm eating healthy, uh, I'm most likely feeling good about myself. If I'm not eating healthy, then there's something up that I need to really pay attention to. So, you know, paying attention to my eating habits has, for me, has been a really, really good way to gauge where I'm at mentally and emotionally. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So when you go in now and you work with clients and on projects, what are some of the biggest stereotypes or misunderstandings that you see? How, how much of it is about men in power who you're dealing with feeling like they need to cover up their mental health issues? Or do, are people just sort of willfully blind to men's mental health and specifically men of color's mental health? That's a that's a great way to put it uh, about being willfully blind. I think there is an element of that for sure, mm-hmm. because I think that as men of color, we have different challenges in the workplace than than dominant culture does. But in terms of just we'll, we'll talk about men in general and, and kind of how that shows up in the workplace. You know, we, we just masculinity and traditional notions of masculinity play out way different and in unique ways in corporate spaces. Uh, and so I think we need to look at that and how that affects, you know, the ways we perform. So when I look at leaders, for example, and when I speak to leaders or I do a workshop or, or coaching sessions, I often ask them what their values are, first and foremost. What is it that they value? And then what do they incentivize across their teams? And if they're incentivizing things like collaboration, things like trust and and, and communication, to me, that's a great sign because it's it's incentivizing healthy habits that are not traditionally ascribed to masculinity. I was going to say those are so those are seemingly feminine uh, <laughs> right. relational right. qualities. Exactly, exactly. But if they're incentivizing uh, competition and uh, excellence, and you know, uh, so so all the other yeah. things, workaholism. Then, Exactly. Those are those are red flags for me. So I, I usually start with those types of questions and then work from there. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think that generally speaking, when we're talking about mental health with men in the workplace, it's, you know, if we're having a hard time admitting that we might struggle from depression or anxiety uh, outside of work, then definitely not at work. Right. Because it's the perceived notion of, of having so much to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 isolation that that can come with the risks, the the perceived risks of not being considered a good leader, for example, those those are real concerns for men. Um, and so for us, it's, again, trying to find ways to numb those 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 pains and those traumas, if you will, for, for the sake of our career success and viability. Is there is there a first question you always ask? What's the way in to starting? How do you to, feel? How do you feel? Yeah, <laughs> but that that's something that we're always taught to say. I feel fine. <laughs> right, right. And so the usually the second question is, how do you really feel? Mm. Right. And and I think that's so. So the other thing I do is I try to model behavior. Um, I try to model what it could look like for them to be vulnerable in that space. So I'll usually sell, tell a story uh, or share something that I'm feeling. Um, particularly vulnerable about. So that usually kind of starts to help create the space and the vibe in the room to allow for that level of, of vulnerability and uh, and sharing. So yeah, I think it, modeling behavior is really, really important, especially in workspaces. Was there a leader in your life who modeled vulnerability and taught you? Yeah, and I don't think he knows that. Um, <laughs> well, let's tell him. Yeah, so he, he, <laughs> will, he will hopefully l- listen to this one day and uh, 
I just got to say thank you. So thank you for asking that question because it just reminds me maybe I should write him a note. Um, <laughs> but the, this leader in particular, he, he and I won't say his name, but he uh, modeled behavior that I thought was just incredible, not just as a leader, uh, as, as a manager, but I, I was priv- I worked so closely with this gentleman. He was a senior person at one of my last jobs, um, global head of, of the capital markets group there. And I got such an intimate view into his life not, by way of working with him in the way that I did that I got a chance to see how he was as a father, mm. as a husband, um, not just as a leader. And so he brought a lot of those qualities into the workplace. You know, so when I look at, uh, and, and a lot of my work is predicated on trying to create and establish new archetypes for leaders, right, and for masculinity, especially in the workplace. To me, he brought the archetype of a father and caretaker into the space because he really cared about people um, and, and, you know, the art of writing handwritten notes, hmm. uh, the art of, Uh, Checking in with you in the morning before you're asking the status of a project, check in with you about what's going on at home, remembering my family's name. I mean, things like that. So for me, he modeled really just strong, uh, nurturing, masculine behavior that does exist, but um, but doesn't really exist inside of corporate spaces. So I want to give him a shout out because he he was incredible. I guess what is to be done to help not just men in leadership, but all people in leadership in corporate America be more public and be more vulnerable publicly? Yeah. Wow, that's that's hard. <laughs> I mean, I would say I, I'd start with we, we, we have to really think about, again, what we incentivize at work, what, what values uh, we hold to be true. But I also think that fundamentally it's just shifting away from a zero-sum game, mm. right? The idea that as professionals who are in, in, in our careers and are wanting to be successful, all of us want to be successful. Uh, but there's a fundamental idea in, in certain spaces that I've been a part of that there isn't enough out there for everyone. And that's, to me, that's a – and that competition that, that – uh, fosters and engenders is really damaging. And so for me, part of, of the shift has to be that fundamental shift away from um, the, the competitive kind of you know cutthroat environments that exist in some corporate spaces and moving towards a more collaborative uh, approach to building and growing together. And that might sound uh, super esoteric and existential, but but I do believe that there's got to be a softness that we have to cultivate at work that in, in, in on one side does increase the pie for everyone so that no one feels like they have to sacrifice to give to another. Um, but but I, th- I just think that the, we've got to adopt a different mentality as far as how we approach our careers and our work. And, and I don't know if that's something that happens in my lifetime, but, but I want to take a piece of that shift by way of the work that I'm doing with men and vulnerability to help usher that in, if that makes sense. More pie. That's it. More pie. Not everyone going after one piece of pie. Yeah. But, but you know, but you referenced this earlier. It sounds like y- when you were growing up, there certainly wasn't, you know, an overflow of pie. And, and, and you probably had to fight pretty hard. Um, you have an MBA from NYU. You, you've achieved a lot. H- how do you see when you go in and work with achievers, how does the pressure to succeed impact yeah. The mental health of the men you work with, um, yeah. because there is the very real need 
to drive yourself forward to get somewhere in corporate America or in anywhere? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, there's an exercise that I do where I, I ask them to name their fears and put them up on a dry erase board and, you know, just as many as come as many come up i try to kind of write them out and then have them see that right so that that mm. comes out right so now that's out of your body it's out of your psyche and so you can put it outside of yourself and observe it and detach yourself from that so once we do that then we get into uh an exercise of really uh understanding what they're what they value and and you know going back to that that conversation or that the, the topic around increasing the pie um you know oftentimes it's not about finances, right? And I think when you do that exercise with men and you put their anxieties up on that whiteboard, I ask them, well, what do you value? What, what, uh, Which of these risks do you think are going to be so egregious, right? You, uh, what, wh- that, that it's going to affect your livelihood. And none of them tend to do, right? Because what you realize is that they start to talk about things like, I, I want to spend time with my family. I want to spend time, you know, contributing back to the communities that I come from. So it's really uh, about redefining what success means to them and uh, and helping them think about, one, adopting an abundance mindset, but then also what other ways can you measure success that are not financial? And I think when you look at that picture holistically, it starts to really give men license to to disassociate or separate themselves from the pressures that they feel of having to perform. Um, and so I don't, that's that's my way of doing it. But I think that seems to work. That seems to be impactful because it really just gets down to the core of of the humanity that we all share, right? Whether you're a man or, or a woman, you, you share that that sense of wanting to do good and wanting to uh, be feel like you belong to a community, to your family, to friends. I think all of those things are important. So it's not about money. No. Money isn't the number one no. that goes up on that board. That is so interesting to me. It never is. It never is. I mean, I wouldn't say never. I, oftentimes it is, but it's not the first thing that comes up. What kind of um, pushback do you get from your clients if if your work makes them uncomfortable or if it makes people uncomfortable? Do, do you get pushback? And how do you combat that? Yeah, I mean, that's just it. Yeah. So we, we're living in a time where men are still having to grapple with very serious topics and conversations, right? And I think that's what Me Too has done that I, that I love, that I uh, absolutely think is a positive, And that is it's given us a gift and an opportunity to look at ourselves deeply. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of men are still grappling with that. And so the pushback is, yeah, I think you've, you've also read this in the news often that men are avoiding having closed door uh, meetings with women and mentoring women and hiring women. So that tends to be the pushback is I don't want to get in trouble. Um, mm. I don't want to do something where it's going to be perceived wrongly. And I think that though that is a very real concern, I also think it's somewhat of a cop out because when you think about having uh, a, a meeting with with a woman, say, at work, you, as a man, as an individual, as a human being, I think we all have enough emotional intelligence or should be doing the work to develop the emotional intelligence to know what's right and what's wrong. And when you're saying or doing something that might make someone uncomfortable. So when I hear that, uh, that is that tends to be one of the biggest pushbacks is, well, we don't know what to do. Um, mm-hmm. Well, well, it starts with you doing the self-reflective work for yourself and on yourself 
to to develop the the EQ that you need. But uh, I just think retreating is not the answer. It's about confronting these issues. And I think we're we're still at a point in our time with this conversation that it's still evolving. Um, But I do think people are being more receptive to it. Was there a moment in one of your workshops or a situation where someone was a really tough nut to crack? Like you felt like this person was resisting you. And they had a breakthrough. And can you talk about that? Hmm. Yeah, there was an instance where I saw a young man um, display a level of vulnerability that was surprising to me. So in 2018, I hosted a conference for men, uh, a mental health and wellness conference. And 10 minutes into the conference where the keynote is, is happening and this gentleman is asked to come up to the middle of the room, 250 people in the room. And he's engaging in conversation with the uh, with a keynote uh, speaker. Uh, he asks some some questions, and he gets to talking about his experience with his mother um, and and her struggles with mental health. And I know this gentleman uh, from college. He was a tough guy, um, super muscular and athletic, all the things that you would describe to a traditional guy. But he started to talk about his mom, and he was. Super. I mean, he just transformed and he got to the point where he was just crying in front of the room and really set the tone for the rest of the conference. So for me, that that was a flag. It was just like, hey, Jason, you're on to something mm-hmm. here because, it, you know, regardless of how men look physically or, or present outwardly. Again, I think I started the conversation. We were all sensitive creatures and much more sensitive than the world gives us credit for. And that was an example of that. So really proud of being involved in that moment. And also the modeling, right? Because he modeled and then, as you said, set the stage for other people to be vulnerable in a way they may not have been otherwise. A hundred percent. I want to go back to, um, did you start therapy around that 2016 time or was that earlier? No, I had been going to therapy before that. So I think I started my first therapy session in 2007. Interesting. And do you mind sharing what, what? triggered that? Was that the start of your journey? Uh, I I think the start of my journey was way before that. But for me, it was just traumatic experiences, right? Um, And and for a lot of men, it tends to be the loss of a job, loss of a parent or loved one, or Mm -hmm. a breakup. And for me, it was Mm -hmm. a breakup. And uh, yeah, so I, I just needed to, it was a tough one. It was one in which, and I'll share, again, I, I don't know any other way but to be vulnerable, but the first thing that you hear when you're a man is, you, you, when you go to, through a breakup is you go sleep around until you get over it and then mm-hmm. you move on. And, uh, you know, most men, I know a lot of men that have done that, I've been that guy as well, and I just didn't want to do that again. Um, it just didn't serve me. And so I wanted to try something different, right? It's the age-old ad- adage, you keep doing something, if you keep doing something and getting the same results, you must be insane, <laughs> right? And so... I just wanted to try something different and decided to to try therapy. And I was never, you know, to my credit, I I was never one to um to to think about therapy or look at therapy as some sort of admission of weakness. It was just like I've just never considered it, you know. And so decided to do that and um probably the best thing that I that I decided to do and what I found was that we spent more time in that, in those sessions talking about Everything else except the breakup, right? It was about getting to the root of how I co-created my life. And that was probably one of the most sobering moments in my life, for sure. Wow. Jason, can you give um, the 
sort of elevator pitch about what the lives of men is and what you do. Absolutely. Well, the Lives of Men is a social impact and creative agency, and we work with brands to help them unlock the best of their brand from the inside out. We work with uh, brands to help them think through their product, their design, their strategy with modern masculinity insights in mind. And we also engage in conversations around diversity, equity and inclusion internally to unlock culture. What will success, or in your mind, what would your success in this venture look like for mental health and wellness for men of color and then more broadly for men in general? Yeah, I I think it'll, I won't see it in my lifetime because I think this is just a really big, I'm, I'm wrestling against the machinery that has conditioned men for centuries and you know, eons before me and will continue to eons after me. I think success is, one, how I feel, right? Do I feel like I've let it out, left it all out on the field and did I put my best foot forward? Uh, yes. So so I can check that box. Am I impacting people's lives? I think I am. People are responding to the messages that I'm putting out there and, and really coming back to me and saying thank you because I've never considered to go into therapy um, you know, I, I've never considered vulnerability as a superpower. I've always looked at it as a weakness. So those things are working. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if success is, and again, going back to redefining it, um, it's not a financial thing for me. Of course, I'd love to make a great living doing what I do. Um, but but it's it's really about uh, leaving the world in a better place than I found it. And, and I also, and this is going to sound a little bit esoteric, but I also am doing a lot of work spiritually to detach myself from the feeling or the kind of the, the wanting to be the person that shifts this, this conversation in this hmm. culture, right? And being comfortable with just being one of the people that, that has ushered this new ideology and this new mindset. I, I, I'm comfortable with that. I don't need to be known as the guy. I just want to be one of the vanguard of guys. So for me, that's success. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Aarons mealy and this is The Anxious Achiever.